Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie or you can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now it's been a very eventful uh, couple of weeks that have gone by with regards to commemorations and today we were going to discuss the controversy surrounding the recent uh, attempt by the government to commemorate the RIC. So, John, first and foremost, what do you think of this whole idea of commemorations? Well, that's a big question. So, you know, we're partway through this decade of centenaries now where we're supposed to almost relive what happened 100 years ago. It's been noticeable that, you know, the Irish government hasn't wanted to say they're celebrating almost at any any stage, you know, the events that led to Irish independence. As a history person, I must say, I'm very ambivalent about commemorations, because on the one hand, it is great for public interest in history and public engagement with history. You do get to reach a lot more people. It also does provoke people to do more research and more work. So, I mean, we have seen probably a lot more work into the Irish Revolution over the last 10 years as a result. But on the other hand, I mean, the bad thing about commemorations from, from a history point of view, I think, is a commemoration has to be about what does it all mean and what does it all mean for now. So an awful lot of the time with commemorations, what it really is about is packaging a version of the past that's palatable for the present, that's politically useful for the present. And what was kind of interesting was that the 1916 Rising, which is obviously such a symbolic event, was able to be packaged in 2016 in an almost non-political way. So there was talk about, like, everyone, to paraphrase James Connolly, did their duty according to their lights, kind of thing. And there was no right and there was no wrong. And there was, you know, the workers' movement and there was feminists. And and funny enough, I mean, uh, if you didn't know, you might not think that the insurgents were nationalists in 1916 and were out for an independent Ireland. And you had things like people talking about the Irish soldiers in the British Army at the same time and the British soldiers who came to, to Dublin. And for some reason, it didn't seem to be that problematic, you know. Uh, even though, I mean, it, it exposes, I think, the difference between our perception of, of political violence and, and its reality, because 1916 was a bit more like a conventional battle and there were flags and uniforms and and clearly defined kind of combatants, but I mean, it was a horrendously violent event by Irish standards, and nearly 300 civilians were killed and, and several thousand injured. I mean, there was incidents of the British Army um, breaking into houses in, in the north inner city, in North King Street, and uh, killing all the men and boys they found there. I mean, there was incidents of the volunteers shooting people who were looting or who were trying to uh, break down their barricades or who otherwise objected to them. There was a lot of wanton killing, actually, of civilians in the Rising, but none of this seemed to matter greatly. And even, like, the executions certainly caused bitterness at the time, but didn't cause any bitterness in, in 2016. Now, what you're seeing now, though, as we enter the War of Independence centenary period, which was a much different kind of conflict, it was a conflict of assassinations and ambushes, and, and people have a harder time with this idea of political violence, even though, you know, it actually much less concentrated violence than, than the Rising. But like the idea of fair fight, people still seem to have this idea, which generally there wasn't in the War of Independence. You know, you, you decided to kill someone and you went out and tracked them down and, and killed them. Was how the majority of, of people died. People also died in, in combat, but 
the majority were probably were probably targeted killings. And also, I think the War of Independence is, is very stark in terms of its polarisation. There's no way to say, like, Asquith, for example, the Prime Minister, said after the Rising that, you know, the rebels conducted themselves with great bravery and gallantry and uh, they were misled into this into this awful business. Mm. And nobody said this in 1920. You know, it was quite clear this is a very politicised insurrection. It threw out Ireland, first of all, that seized political power through the ballot box. And then, you know, the local councils, they're replacing the court system. Um, they're trying to replace the police in a lot of areas and then they're launching an, an armed insurgency so it's, it's quite clear they're not being misled it's very stark the doll has its claim the first doll has its claim as the legitimate authority and they say British authority and anyone it's illegitimate and anyone cooperating with it, it is a traitor collaborator so I think it's it's harder to commemorate through this lens of reconciliation that the government Irish governments have wanted to use like yeah, you kind of had to pick a side. You have to say either the doll was legitimate or it wasn't. Either British authority was legitimate or it wasn't. And I think the RIC thing kind of really exposed this because if you were to say, as Charlie Flanagan, the then Minister for Justice, said the RIC men were just policemen and they were enforcing the law and protecting the community and they were murdered, and that's what he, what he said, yeah. you are saying that the Republican authority that they declared in 1919 was wrong, was illegitimate. And the RIC were, were right. They were upholding the law. You know, you have to make these choices when you're speaking about that conflict. It's not possible just to say, well, everybody had their own point. Well, that's what seems to be a, the funny thing with a lot of the, the discussions that went on. In one sense, the government wants to depoliticize the commemorations or almost not take a stand in any way. Like we're not uh, like another country who gained independence, who is celebrating the people, the activists, revolutionaries who got us the independence, the public movement that got us the independence. It's like we're just going to commemorate it all. Nobody was right, nobody was wrong, everyone's equally the same. Uh, whereas at the same time you have the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, making these value judgments with using the word murder, mm. that policemen were murdered. If you have a revolutionary movement that's going to come up against the state, that's hoping to overthrow the state, the first thing it's going to encounter is the police force. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think you've put your finger on why the RIC commemoration was, was so problematic. It wasn't only this depoliticized thing, which is which can be a problem, but like the, the state appeared to take sides on the other side, on the on the pro-British side, if you like. And uh, Minister Flanagan was, as I said, as we said, said the the RIC were upholding the law and they were murdered. You know, it's a, it's a very that's a very clear statement of who was right and who was wrong. And I think, you know, obviously it was seen through the lens of more recent history. So, you know, many members of Fine Gael at senior level, not so many now, but some would have served through the Troubles and they would have seen the Gardaí as the legitimate authority and the provisional IRA as, as criminals and far, far, far fewer. But some, some Gardaí were, were shot by the provisional IRA and, and more were intimidated. And they probably see it through that light. Now, I think speaking kind of historically there was a lot of kind of misconceptions and I think government th thinking would have done well from some some good historical briefings for instance the law that the RIC was upholding in Ireland in 1919 1920 going back to 1914 in some ways was emergency law right so that means mm -hmm. things like the, the right to trial by jury was in many cases suspended certainly after the summer of 1920 it was and before that also in, in some cases you had the right to be executed by a military court-martial 
or the right is the wrong yeah. word. You, um, the privilege, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But you, in other words, the civilians yeah. could, could be tried by, by court martial and executed and interned, and they were. There was official reprisals, so like the community in general was, was held responsible for the actions of, of the volunteers. Now, this happened unofficially really in 1920, but it happened officially from December 1920 until July 1921, or June 1921. This is not normally upholding the law. This is something different. This is fighting a conflict. And just one more point on that, like another thing which the government, and the government reacted kind of disparagingly to people who who said this, but like they said, well, it's not commemorating the Black and Tans and how dare you conflate the RIC with the Black and Tans. Well, the Black and Tans were the RIC. I mean, Hammer Greenwood, the chief secretary, got up in parliament and he said, uh, this is in 1920, and said, just to clear up any confusion, um, the so-called Black and Tans are just ordinary constables of the RIC and the auxiliary division are also members of the RIC, although they have a separate organisation. Mm. So, like, a couple of good history briefings would have been useful, I think, for, for the people involved. Yeah, well, we did see that the historical committee that's supposed to advise the government, they said, don't blame this on us, we weren't asked our opinion. Now, I don't know how much that was arse covering from them, like, you know, after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I think it was because, uh, like, the, the historical committee did apparently say, don't forget to commemorate the the DMP and the RAC, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. Now, afterwards, they said, well, we didn't mean a commemoration. We meant like some sort of a conference where their role could be explained or something like that. Uh, but it was interesting that, um, whereas Dermot Ferreter hung the minister out to dry, I, I might say, by saying, well, we didn't intend this at all. You know, the likes of Morris Manning uh, and you know help and said, well, well, we did say this, actually. So there, there, might have been a, there might have been wires crossed there. Well, as you were saying there about the, the situation in Ireland regarding the type of law that was being enforced at the time. And it wasn't normal. It wasn't normal peacetime law. We should also say that the Royal Irish Constabulary weren't a normal police force in the British sense that you would get a police force in Manchester or London or Birmingham or somewhere. Like, how did the RIC differ as a police force in Ireland than, say, a, a local constabulary in England? Yeah, I mean... Just one thing to say, though, I mean, we can't, we shouldn't be too kind of anglocentric about this because mm. the RAC were, were not unlike, say, the gendarmerie in France or the Guardia Civil in Spain or, or the Carabinieri in, in, in Italy, like, which are all parts of the army, actually, and still are today. The RAC was not like the local police forces in Britain because the model that, of British policing was unarmed police, which are responsible to the local elected government, uh, and they were usually municipal forces. It's strange in a way because Britain still doesn't have a nationwide police force, which is unusual. The Dublin Metropolitan Police conformed to this model. Like they were unarmed for the most part, except for their detectives. But the RIC was a different thing. The RIC was modelled on the rifle brigades, actually, the light infantry of the British Army. It was armed with uh, carbines and revolvers. And it was organised in, in a kind of a military style. I mean, it, it, their, their stations, although they didn't really resemble barracks, they were always called barracks. That they were a couple of times a year, the RIC was mustered for, for military drill and so on. Now... People will say that the RIC by, say, 1910-ish didn't really look like that anymore. Because, yes, they were armed and, yes, there was, the military drill was still practised. Yes, most of their senior officers had actually come across from the British Army after they retired from the Army. So in that sense, it was like a gendarmerie. It was a, you know, an armed national police force. It was responsible to Dublin Castle. It wasn't responsible to elected government of anybody in Ireland. It was responsible to the British administration, which was in Dublin Castle. Like, just in a slight tangent misconception people have had talking to people is that well Ireland was just part of the UK well it wasn't really I mean mm -hmm. Ireland was semi-detached from the UK 
It was a, an Irish government based in Dublin Castle, but it was appointed from Britain. The RIC's supporters, I would say, or the people who would sympathise with the RIC would make the point, well, they generally didn't carry arms by 1910. Their stations were called barracks, but they were just converted houses. They lived in very small groups throughout the countryside, and as well as enforcing the law, they were also involved in things like taking the census and, and so on like that. Like many things, there, there's two sides to it, but certainly no, I mean, the RIC was not a, a civil municipal force. It was a semi-military force, and it was designed that way. And, and what's interesting as well is, to, I would counter the argument that said the RIC had changed into something different, what, which is in 1916, for example, um, outside of Dublin, when, for example, the, the volunteers took over the, the town of Ashburn or the police station at, at Ashburn County Meath, you know, immediately a, a large, well-armed force of RIC appeared on the scene. And, and there was a quite a significant battle up in Ashburn, which shows that the RIC was capable of very short notice of armed action, as that was one of its functions. And of course, the originally it was the Irish constabulary founded in the 1830s that got the royal for helping to put down the Athenian insurrection of 1867. You can't overlook either of those things. I mean, the RIC's function was to help enforce British rule in Ireland. At the same time, the RIC, as it existed, was quite poorly prepared for, for guerrilla warfare. You know, because a lot of its uh, members, a lot of its constables would have seen themselves as ordinary police. You know, it's, it's, it's a multi-sided question. But the bottom line is, the RSC's role was to protect and enforce British rule in Ireland. Yeah, there's no getting around that. No getting around it. That's the simple fact. I also another thing that the RSC would have had a huge intelligence role in Ireland. Like, I think with the, um, when the Trash of Conscription came up, one of the roles that they have was, was basically house by house, uh, sending reports about people's political views, what would happen, what to expect from them if there was uh, an outbreak of violence based on enforcing conscription in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's ever read the RSC's county reports from this time will see that one of their functions was to talk about what is the political opinions in the locality. And if there are separatist or as they were referred to, I think, seditious organisations, that was their job. They had to report on, on what they were doing and who they were and what they were saying and how many people sympathised with them. That was part of the RSC's role, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as regards intelligence, the only thing I'd say is the RSC wasn't particularly good at that. I mean, they didn't have um, really a detective division. That was mostly farmed out to the G division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. So the RSC had very kind of on-the-ground intelligence. They, they didn't have a detective division, really, or, or special, a special branch mm-hmm. on the model of, of Scotland Yard, or even of the, the guards would have today. I think one of the things with when we're looking at this period... The first thing really that comes to mind is Solohead Beg, although it's not the first time when there's, there's violence between police and Republicans. But a lot is made of the fact that the constables who were shot, they were Irish speakers, they had Irish families, they were very ordinary Irish men. And I think the commemorations to do with Solohead Beg, they included families of both the Republicans and the surviving family members of the or see men who've been killed and most people seemed happy with the way that those commemorations had passed off without any of the controversy that has surrounded these proposed commemorations. Yeah, I mean, I think you put your finger on it earlier when you said that there wasn't this level of judgment in that particular commemoration. I mean, even though Mr. Flanagan did say some of those things at that, but I mean, it was a, there was a service held and people, representatives from both sides of that ambush were there and there wasn't this thing of, well, these people were right and these people were wrong. You know, which I think people would be much more comfortable with. What people were really uncomfortable with was this idea of the RSC were right in, in 1920. 
And I think people were right to be angry at that or right to be to disagree with that, uh, especially when we talk about what the RSE became in 1920-21. Well, that's the thing. When we get into 1920 and 21, there was a lot of serving members of the RSC that had either decided to surreptitiously support the Republican movement or resign altogether from the force. So to remain within the force was taking a very definite view of where you stood in regards to the conflict and who was right and who was wrong. Yeah, and I mean, this goes back to the point I was trying to make a few minutes ago, which is it's not the kind of conflict where you can say, well, everyone is right a little bit. Unfortunately, if you're in the police or if you were serving the government in any way, really, you, you had to make a choice. Now, yes, a lot of RIC men resigned, not only because they agreed with the first all, but also there was a lot of intimidation. There was a boycott of the RIC. But there was also many RIC members who, who did help the Republicans. You see this all the time. I myself, for example, looked into the policeman who, who claimed to have saved Michael Collins' life in, in uh, County Roscommon. I'm, I'm a little sceptical about that, but certainly he was helping the local, the local IRA. And, and that wasn't that uncommon. Those who stuck around, you know, I can understand their decision because probably they were thinking more about their pension than, than the Crown. But the fact is that they were taking sides in, in what was becoming a war. You know, and that's, that's the stark reality of the time. People had to make very difficult choices, but they made them. Well, I think another myth that needs to be exploded as well is that the atrocities were carried out by an intimidation, were carried out by uh, the new imported members of the RIC, that this was all the work of black and tans and auxiliaries. Yeah, it's a convenient myth, that one. You know, like, for there's a couple of things to say. I mean, just kind of backtracking a little bit on the, the actual history. So, the... Second last commissioner of the RIC was Joseph Byrne, who was an Irishman, a Catholic, if you want to attribute tribal loyalties to him. What he recommended as the crisis was brewing in Ireland was that the RIC actually be disarmed and they'd be transferred more into a civil police. And he was uh, effectively fired by Sir John French, the Lord Lieutenant, and Walter Long. And there they made the conscious decision to go for a militarised police force. And so they they import they started recruiting people who we refer to as black and tans. Now, just a point on that, that there was no such thing as the black and tans. The black and tans were members of the RIC, recruited from mostly from Britain. Mostly they were veterans of the First World War or other ex-servicemen. The force was also rearmed. For example, they were given the, the service rifle of the British Army. They were given machine guns and grenades and, and so on like this, armoured vehicles too. But right until the end of the War of Independence, if you look at any particular ambush and the casual, the police casualties, they're likely to be at least 50% so-called old RIC. And they might be 50%, you know, relatively recent British recruits. And in terms of reprisals, this is the point you were making, I think, Kyle, there's no shortage of RIC, Irish, old, so-called RIC, who did reprisals. Um, famously, you know, Tomás McCurtain, the mayor of Cork, was, was shot dead by a squad of RIC men who were regular Irish RIC men. Um, there was a, a death squad, so-called, or the murder gang was the term at the time, up in Roscommon, for example, which was exclusively Irish. And even in places like Galway, which were kind of terrorised by black and tans and auxiliaries. Um, I recently was reading John Cunningham's book about this, and it was it's amazing because Galway wasn't that violent a county, but the Crown forces were extremely harsh there. But it was the Irish RIC who would point out uh, targets to the auxiliaries, mm. for example, and some really horrendous murders, like the Lockman murders, the murder of Father Michael Griffin, 
you know, stuff like this. If you stuck around in the RC, and unless there was some people who kind of, you know, stayed in the station, didn't do anything, there was some who helped the IRA, quite a few. But if you didn't do any of those things and, and you were involved in the in the war, most of them were involved all the way. You know, they, they did killings, they did reprisals, killings, they did burnings, they participated in, for example, the reprisals after the Renine ambush in September 1920, where Ennis Diamond, Milton Malby, and Renine itself were, you know, were largely burnt down and there was a number of people killed. You know, that was a mixed force, including old RSC, who had presumably been stationed there for a long time. Uh, the RSC's, the old RSC's hands were not clean. Let's let's not be under any illusions. And we have a tendency to look at history backwards and assume there was always going to lead to independence or a free state. In that period, during the War of Independence, and it's even funny, there were people, very diehard Southern Unionists, who believed that the whole concept of home rule would have been gone altogether, that they just would have stayed at the UK. This all could have been defeated, the separatist idea. So that us thinking back, or us looking at it now, assuming that independence was coming and all these men in the RIC, what were they hanging on for? There should, must have been a, a certain amount of RIC members who would have assumed that, you know, the IRA and the Republican movement could have been defeated completely. Oh, yeah. And uh, the RIC would have continued on indefinitely as a police force in Ireland. Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly in 1919 and, and for a good chunk of 1920 that might have looked a lot less likely in late 1920 1921 mm-hmm. but um oh yeah i mean i think i would assume i would assume most RAC constables and officers thought that that they were going to be the police force um of whatever settlement emerged in ireland sir and, and the RAC would have been the police in, in home rule ireland like i think we've made the point on this podcast before that home rule was actually a very limited amount of self-government and that the police wouldn't have been under the control of the irish parliament that would have remained the same under the Home Rule Act of 1914 mm. and 1920. We, it was a whole other discussion, but like British policy after the First World War was kind of very equivocal about this. So like Home Rule had been enacted. On the other hand, you had very high-ranking people like Sir John French who thought that Home Rule should just be quietly scrapped and they could have something they called federalism. So like Ireland could have some sort of government but with very little power. You know, there was division of opinion. But British policy was, was in flux about this. And, and, you know, what, what they did in the end, prior to the treaty, was, of course, they had two home rule parliaments, you know, the Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. But, yeah, like, it's 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 certainly it's certainly not the case Irish independence was inevitable. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, some form of some form of self-government, yeah, but how much that was going to be, what it would have looked like. Like, as I, as I said again, I mean, home rule would have left the peace under the control of Dublin Castle. The British Army would have been the army of Ireland. In any foreign policy thing, Ireland would have been part of the of the UK. So yeah, I mean, I, I take your point. But another thing we have to look at as well, if we're looking back through history, we forget that this was an all Ireland. We always look at things yeah. through the prism of, of partition and assume that, like you know, the twenty six county Ireland was Ireland. This the RSC was a thirty one county body. So obviously Dublin have its own police force. Well, Dublin County was also policed by the RSC. Dublin City only was policed by the, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. So, so it was 32 County. Yeah. yeah. So when we when we look at the RIC and we talk about things like the McCartan murder and uh, various different reprisals, we also have to look into the role of the RIC in the North and what would become the six counties. And there's a lot of blood on their hands in that area. There was. I mean, one of the funny things, though, about the RIC in the North was that um, the RIC's rank of file was majority Catholic. 
So the Ulster Unionists really were rather suspicious of the RIC. And if you go back to, for example, 1886 and the anti-home rule riots in Belfast, and at that time, which were extremely bloody, I think there was 25 people killed, many of whom were, were actually Unionist rioters who were shot by the RIC. So you have a different dynamic in the North, and that's one of the reasons why the, the Unionist proto-government, or the Unionists anyway, raised the Ulster Special Constabulary in, in 1920, starting in 1920, which was their own armed police force. Having said that, I mean, some officers of the RIC in the North, uh, notably John Nixon, up in Belfast, were behind many of the most uh, gruesome uh, atrocities carried out on that side. You know, for example, the McMahon murders, where uh, a family who were actually loyal to Joe Devlin and the, the Irish Parliamentary Party were basically wiped out. All the male members of the family were were shot by police who broke into their house and shot them in bed. And um, the Ireland Street murders, where they, they broke down houses and killed people with random civilians, I should add, in, in, in West Belfast with uh, with guns and with sledgehammers, was carried out again probably by John Nixon. May have been a mixed RIC special force. But yeah, I mean, in the, people have made this point as well that yeah, in the, in the north of Ireland, the, the RIC's hands weren't clean either. Now, there is, and another thing to mention actually is that quite a few RIC men who were disbanded in 1922 were sent north and joined the RUC originally. But having said that, there is a certain amount of truth in the statement that the RIC was perceived by Northern Catholics as, as much more neutral force than either the Special Constabulary mm. or the RUC that, that, that followed them. So, so, you know, there's a little bit of, a little bit both ways there. If we're looking at the problematic actions of the RIC, we have to include the whole oh, of the country, yeah. Completely. So this is the thing that the, the government didn't seem willing to acknowledge, that the RIC had a problematic history, and sometimes a lot more than problematic. Yeah, I mean, like, I, one of the things that was irritating kind of about the the controversy, like, I, I, thought, I thought in some ways the controversy showed a great public engagement with history. You know, I, I thought that was a good thing. I mean, I, I didn't enjoy some of the bios about it by people who were against the comment, the commemorations either, like people saying that the RIC were like the SS and stuff, which is which is way, way too far to go. But there was, on the other side, like there was a certain amount of kind of condescension and disparaging from the government point of view. Like Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, said, well, people don't mind commemorating the Irish soldiers in the First World War now, so in time people will commemorate the RIC in the same way not appearing to realise that these were two very different propositions. So the men who went to fight in the First World War in the various battlefields in the British Army didn't fight against Irish independence. They weren't charged with putting down Irish independence, and that's that was the role of the RIC. That was the RIC's job. And it does go back to the point that we're making. This, is, this was a time of, of stark choices and stark divisions, and it can't be wished away by commemoration. Well, the government response... Because there was genuine anger, I think, from an awful lot of people about this. But the government's response seemed to be, it didn't seem to acknowledge any of this from the public. It seemed to be a very petulant, dismissive response to the, the feeling among the general population that this was a bad idea. It did. And I mean, one of the things that struck me as odd about this was it actually um, annoyed a lot of Fine Gael supporters as well. Because... You know, Fine Gael's heritage is, is, is kind of convoluted in some ways, but there is a very strong nationalist uh, wing of Fine Gael and Fine Gael support that traces it all the way back to Michael Collins and the old IRA. You, you know, it was not only among Sinn Féin supporters or Fianna Fáil supporters or, or anybody else. The, the Fine Gael supporters also disapproved, uh, polls show this, of, of the RIC commemoration. So I, I think it was, yeah, it was very misconceived. 
Yeah, there seems to be an opinion coming from the government that this was backwoodsmen yeah. who are complaining about the RIC and if we uh, were to be mature and responsible, we should be willing to commemorate the RIC. Without appearing to acknowledge that this does have a political meaning, commemorating the RIC, that it, that it is saying something about the validity of Irish independence and stuff. You know, it's, they didn't seem, for some reason, this didn't seem to have occurred to them. No, and also some some people were saying that Fine Gael, as like a, a very conservative party, the idea of law and order and maintaining the status quo and supporting those who are in uniform, maintaining the status quo, was very important and reconciling the memory of the RAC. But, as you say, that's taking a stand one way or the other. That's, that's coming down on the side of those who were tasked with preventing Irish independence. Yeah, and it, it does actually, as I said, imply commemorating the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries as well, because they were part of the RIC. Just one more point on that, which is the polls show that, like, say, 70% of Fine Gael supporters were also against it. So, you know, I really think they got this one wrong, from the, even from their own point of view. Well, it really hung around their necks like an albatross within a couple of weeks of going into a general election. And we, really, we even saw, like, uh, Fine Gael posters to face with RIC. Yeah, Black and Tans. You know, and I mean, uh, some people who, whose ancestors were in the RIC got in touch with me via uh, my website, because obviously I was speaking about this. And I mean, I do understand their point that, you know, their relatives thought they had a job and that they were taught they were doing a job and they were, they were killed. I understand that. But the real problem with the commemoration was this judgmental thing. It, like had they had some some sort of service saying well we're sorry anyone who's anyone died and let's commemorate them all that would have been okay but this there was this judgmental thing of like the RAC were right I think yes. that was the problem. What do you think about the idea that there is a difference between commemorating your great grandfather who was a sergeant in the RAC and commemorating the RAC itself as a body? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, this is kind of repeating the point that we're making, but the RAC's the RIC was a body whose rule it was to enforce British rule or to maintain British rule in Ireland. It was armed. It was not under the control of, of Irish government, uh, local government or any other kind of government. And that's, you know, that and it pulls up. You know, you can't get away from that fact. If people want to celebrate, I don't know, the union or so on, maybe, you know, they might want to celebrate the RIC, but it is a political choice, you know. I mean, but what's interesting as well is that there was another misconception, I think, Exposed, for example, Newton Emerson, the Irish Times columnist, who is obviously from a Northern Unionist background, and wrote, "Well, this shows what you know disrespect to, to my tradition." It doesn't actually, because the RIC was quite disliked and distrusted by most Ulster Unionists, which is why they raised their own armed police. Well, I seen a good response to that where somebody said, um, "I'm an Irish Protestant, and uh, state-sanctioned border and reprisals are not part of my background." Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea, this was just. Real bad history, I thought, because the RIC does not did not represent Irish Protestants. It was a majority Catholic organisation, but it did represent British rule in Ireland. You know, uh, projecting the RIC onto the Irish Irish Protestant community is a fallacy. You know, yeah. and I mean, what's very interesting as well is looking back to the actual time and the history. Is a lot of Protestants, Irish Protestants at the time, were really appalled by what the RIC became um, in terms of reprisals and black and tan period. You know. The likes of WB Yeats, for example, you know, this is what turned them into separatists. It, people who had been kind of moderate nationalists of some sort. As I said, projecting the RIC onto Protestant identities is really 
is really wrong. You know, it, it's that that's just not the way it was. I mean, many Southern Protestants were Unionists at the time. That doesn't necessarily mean they saw the RAC as representing them in, in any particular way. And we can't stress it enough that the the Black and Tans were permanent pensionable members of the RIC. Yeah, and I mean, even a lot of people who would be closer to my own view views on this, they got this wrong, you know, when they were talking about it. There was a lot of talk that the RIC, the Black and Tans were the special reserve of the RIC, mm. which is quite wrong. There was no such thing. There was a reserve force, which was in the Phoenix Park. New recruits were certainly sent to the depot. And they were given some training, not enough training in policing, but they were given training. And maybe that's where the confusion comes from. But the Black and Tans were not a special reserve. They weren't a special corps within the RAC. They were the RAC. The name comes from, there wasn't enough police uniforms. The police uniform was dark green, but it looked black. They were given whatever police uniform was available and then surplus military uniform. So khaki and black, black and tan. By the end of 1920, that was actually uh, rectified. So they were all wearing, by 1921, they were all wearing police uniform. There's no two ways about it. The black and tans were RAC constables. Um, as I said before, I think the Chief Secretary clarified this helpfully in Parliament, so we have a nice quote. The auxiliaries, slightly different thing. And one of the things to say, to be fair, is like, I get the impression an awful lot of black and tans um, were ill-disciplined and drunken and, and so on and, and beat people up. But the really bad things generally were done by the auxiliaries, which was a special core of ex-officers. And they had their own uniform. They had special weapons and so on like that. And everywhere where you look at the auxiliary companies, they generally were pretty feared and loathed. Like... I read a few years ago a collection of Dublin Tenement Lore. The name of the author escapes me, but and and very interesting what they say. They say the um, the average British soldier, the Tommy, was a gentleman, and the the DMP, the Peeler, they would have been used to that. But the Black and Tans, and this really meant the auxiliaries because they talked about guys with berries and so on like that. They said that they were criminals. That they were, you know, they would break into your house looking for suspects or whatever. But they would they would break anything they found. They would steal things. And you see this a lot, like the, the behaviour really was very bad. But again, the auxiliaries, even though they had a separate command, they weren't really under RIC control. They were the RIC auxiliary division. Mm. So they were part of the RIC as well. They were on um, temporary contracts. They Correct. Permanent members of the RIC. Correct. But the so-called black and tans were permanent pentagonal yeah, constables. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's that's the reality. And we've, talked, we've mentioned it before, but like... The special constabulary, like in their relationship to the the RIC, and I suppose, like uh, you've covered this in the Irish Story website, with some of the guest contributors you've had there recently, the Ulster Special Constabulary, it wasn't supposed to be exclusively an, an Ulster Special Constabulary. These were special constables that could have been rolled out throughout the whole country. Yeah, and John O'Neill cleared this up for me. I didn't actually realize this uh, beforehand, but yeah, the there was a, a provision in, in, in British law for the recruitment of special constables in time of emergency, and they were recruited in times of strikes or, you know, other emergencies. There were special constables, I think, during the Second World War as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the special constables, there were some of them recruited throughout the rest of Ireland as well, but really the, the ones we talk about, the specials, were, were in the six counties that would become Northern Ireland. In theory, they were recruited as special constables to the RIC, but they were under RIC command. The commander of the force was an RIC colonel. It's a little bit more problematic to say that the specials were, were RIC, I think, because you know they outlived the RIC mm-hmm. and, and they became a permanent thing in Northern Ireland in the form of the B specials, which was, was one branch. Certainly in 1920-21, they were part of the RIC. They were special constables of the RIC under their command. Something to think about. Uh, it hasn't really been touched on that much, 
I think probably it made more of an impression than people think is the effect that it had on the recent general election and the effect that it had, maybe not solely as an issue in itself, but it did feed into a perception that Fine Gael and Leo Varadkar and the government were very out of touch, very high-handed. The response that they gave to the criticism over the RIC commemoration, they seemed to be a government that weren't willing to countenance anyone contradicting their opinion on things. It certainly didn't help them. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important issues in the election were housing and, and healthcare and general kind of inequality, I, w- I would say, in our society. Having said that, yeah, I think you're, you're 100% right. I mean, I think that people's perception of the cabinet, let's say, in the Taoiseach, was of kind of being out of touch or out of sympathy with the problems faced by most people, which explains, I think, the large vote for Sinn Féin in the general election more than kind of, you know, 32 county republicanism. But national identity is very important for Irish people. And I think the understanding of history is unusually important for Irish people, possibly because of the weakness of other forms of identity, like the Irish language and so on. But Irish history is extremely important for the identity of, of, of most Irish people. The fact that the government seemed to be kind of disrespecting it, 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 disrespecting the central kind of modern narrative of the Irish state and how it came to be, yeah, I think it was a problem for them. Sinn Féin may have got the votes mostly on housing and stuff, and I think they did, but it certainly, you know, it, it's not inconsistent with Sinn Féin's message, let's say, to say that the people who run the, what, what some of them still call the free state, are, you know, a gang of traitors. I, I certainly wouldn't say that, but certain Sinn Féin supporters would say that. I can't remember where I've seen it, but I thought it was a very interesting take on the whole thing. It was um, somebody from Britain was saying that British political memory mm. or discussion tends to not to go back uh, further than Thatcher in the 80s. Yeah, Tim Ellis, I think, said this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, that must be where I'd seen it. But um, somebody looking at all these discussions regarding the RSC commemoration would assume that this is something that happened in the last 10 years and we're discussing it now because it's so animated people and so many people yeah. across the political spectrum across the country. Yeah, I mean, I've long thought this though that like, um, you know, Irish identity is very much bound up with our idea of history. You know, it's it, in a way that's quite unusual, I think. And like I said, I do think it's, it's very strongly to do with this idea of what makes us Irish. Mm. So, well, we don't speak the Irish language. People of our generation are not terribly tied into the... the the old traditions of Irish life, let's say. But we do have this very strong idea of the narrative of where we come from and, mm. and so on. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's um, it's disrespected at your peril if you're a politician. Yeah, so in previous years, an Irish government or an Irish government minister would have got um, ready applause and popularity by bringing up the memory of the revolutionary period or certain things that happened in the past yeah. and wanting to be associated with it. Whereas this government, the current government, seems to go the complete opposite direction. The perception being that they were castigating those who had fought for Irish independence while commemorating those who had put a barrier to it. Fought against Irish yeah. independence. Let's, let's call it spade yeah. a spade. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the narrative of, of kind of the big parties here in the south of Ireland used to be, well, there was an old IRA and they were good and noble in everything that they did. And then there was the modern IRA, which was the bad IRA, you know, yeah. which, who were just criminals and terrorists. And it's interesting that wasn't used at all in, in, in the recent thing. I mean, the same, it, it seemed to be very strongly that, like, you know, the institutions of the state, whichever state it was almost, were, were, were correct and that, you know, people who attacked it were 
illegitimate, mm-hmm. which is which is new, and relatively new, which you didn't really see in 2016, although it was very much mentioned at the start. It was very much self-focus and reconciliation and non-judgmental, but you didn't see this thing of, well, the rebels were wrong. Not from the state, you didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, certainly some people say that, but uh, yeah, it was odd in a way, but not all that surprising, you know, if you, if you look at the perspective of, of, of those people, you know, you might call them uh, statists in a way, not in an economic sense, but in a, for example, they would generally talk about the Irish state. They wouldn't talk about a, a thing like the Irish nation, which is a much more emotional concept. Yeah. And they would talk about the rules of the state and, uh, and the constitution, but they would talk about it in very formalistic legal terms, you know. You know, Leo Varadkar is smart enough to have rolled back a little bit on this. And he's, he said since that Fine Gael is the party that founded the, the state, although he does again say the state, and, and founded the republic, he said. So it's, you know, trying to reappropriate some of these things. But yeah, like their 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 conception of um, nationality and loyalty is, loyalty is very bound up with this idea of the state, you know, mm. which is not completely inconsistent, but... They do have ditched some of the, the rhetoric previous generations, including a Fine Gael would have used. Yeah, but and even taking that into account, we're talking about a different state. That's right. You but know? that's again that was uh, ba- the bad history. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like uh, uh, the idea of taking up arms against uh, legitimate state forces, as you mentioned earlier. The the tradition that Fine Gael comes from. Well, one of the traditions. Correct. One of the traditions. Correct. The pro treaty Sinn Fein tradition was that this wasn't a legitimate state. And that taking on that, that power, that state power through its police uh, and attacking them, was legitimate. And I mean, here's the thing. I would say that the majority of Fine Gael supporters feel that way, actually. You know, whatever about the high echelons of the party. But we might kind of conclude by talking about the, how the commemorations are going to go on, you know, because uh, if they thought this was bad, there's plenty more to come. Yeah, well, we should also say as well that, like, you know, it's uh, with all the, the anger and heat that this has generated... The RIC had been commemorated in Dublin Castle yeah. at a ceremony a couple of years ago. Yeah, and, and, and the DMP yeah. as well. Now, you know, just before we move on, I mean, a word on the DMP, because the DMP and the RIC are not the same beast. Yeah. And the DMP was unarmed. And while it wasn't accountable to the Dublin Corporation, as its equivalent in Britain would have been, it was retained after the Free State and was founded until 1925, mm. when it was just merged with the Guardi. You know, it's a, it's a different beast in that way, even though... You know, the detective division, the G division, had been involved in, let's say, political activities. Uh, and 11 of their detectives were killed, by mostly by, by Michael Collins' squad. Mm. But yeah, I mean, the, the RIC was certainly privately commemorated. Um, the, there's been no ban on, on uh, relatives doing that. Uh, and there was the joint service, as we mentioned, at Salahed Beg, where both sides kind of were acknowledged, was, I think, the furthest the general public is, is willing to go in, in that sense. But like all things, does it seem that when local groups and uh, non-state groups are involved in commemorations and organising things. They seem to pass off with very little difficulty. When the state gets involved, there seems to be this huge muddle every time. Yeah, but the thing is, though, I mean, you know, it's... it's The state saying something is, is of a different order to me or you saying it. Mm. You know, the state is supposed to speak for all of us. Yeah. You know, and that's the idea, anyway, of a modern state. So, like, you know, if the state, if the state says, well, we're commemorating the... Um, the brave policemen who were murdered upholding the law. You know, that's why it's so unpalatable. You know, people can't just say, oh, well, that's your opinion and you're wrong. Because your opinion is supposed to be my opinion, yeah. in, in a sense. So, you know, they, I think they, they might have grasped this better, you know. I'm sure they had they had other things to think about, to be fair, you know. Mm. Uh, Brexit and various other things. 
just one, one more point that um on Brexit is like and how it ties into this stuff is like I can't believe how reticent Fine Gael were to use their stance during Brexit in a, in a nationalist way in the election. You know, they could have said, we are the United Ireland Party, we kept the border open, which is part of Fine Gael's name, going back to 1932. And they don't seem to have done it at all. I thought that was hilarious with uh, the coverage of the election results in Britain. Mm. They, so many commentators were portraying Fine Gael's sea class mm. as down to the anti-British policies of Leo Varadkar. And this was the Irish people punishing Fine Gael for being too nationalist. And, uh, well, you know, many people would make that <laughs> argument with a straight face. But you're absolutely right that uh, Brexit was a very small issue after the fact where people where people were asked about the reasons why they did vote. Mm. i say it's homelessness, it was health service, it was the cost of housing. Very few people were worried about Brexit. Right, but I mean... You know, like Bre- Brexit is out of sight, out of mind, and it's going to yeah. reappear at the end of the year, and yeah. possibly in much more malign ways than people currently realise. But just from the point of view of kind of, you know, public discourse, I was amazed at, at how little Fine Gael, nationalist use, I'm trying to say, yes, Fine Gael made it, right. of their stance, because they did, the government did, did stand up to, if you like, the British government, and they did insist on the border being open, and, and they seem to have been very actually, totally in contrary to this kind of tabloid thing in Britain. They seem to be very reluctant to actually use this as yeah. as an election tool. Uh, it couldn't have hurt, you know. Okay, yeah, most people said they didn't. Brexit wasn't a pressing issue at the moment, but if Finnegan didn't really try to use it either, I, I, I don't think, or, or not that I was, mm-hmm. not that I could see. I mean, most of what they said seemed to be like, well, keep Sinn Fein out because they're a bunch of criminals. But let's move on. Let's talk about yeah. commemorations. Well, we have quite a few coming up, and we are in the contentious period now. Yeah, we're going to start commemorating events from 1920, going into 1921. It's February 2020 now. And there are just so, so many contentious events. So, so many really horrible events involving civilians, involving uh, atrocities, involving questionable actions by the IRA as well, targeting civilians. Absolutely. Sectarian strife and sectarian conflict. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a tall order commemorating these real controversy. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I kind of mix feelings about some of these things. Like, for example, I mean, Bloody Sunday is going to have its centenary. Bloody Sunday in Dublin in 1920. It's going to have its centenary later this year. And I remember years ago leading a group of um, foreign students to Crow Park on a tour. And the guide, uh, I'm not slagging them off, but I mean, you know, what he told them, you have to simplify for, you know, especially in a foreign language. But he said, well, there was a bunch of spies and they were eliminated in the morning. And then the British came to Grove Park and they shot the people there. And I suppose that is essentially what happened. But like this very judgmental word, spies, that they, they, they had it coming, you know. I mean, Bloody Sunday was a, was a ruthless action by IRA um, intelligence, uh, GHQ intelligence. You know, you know they, they had a list of, of 35 men uh, and they were mostly killed in their beds and often in front of their wives. You know, it's, it's nothing to be proud of. You know, you can argue... Maybe it was necessary and so on. Likewise, uh, the Cork uh, County Board in the GA has released a jersey for this year, a commemorative jersey. And so the mayor, Tomas McCurtain, the murdered mayor of Cork, is going to be on one side. The memorial to the Kilmichael ambush is going to be on the reverse side. And, you know, Kilmichael is a story for another day, but like whatever you think about whether there was a false surrender and so on, what happened in the end was that Tom Barry killed all the auxiliaries of, of that patrol. So 17 out of 18, one got away. 
he did kill the man for they surrendered, according to his own account. Uh, whether you think they had it coming because of the false surrender, so on, so on. But certainly all the accounts talk about, well, we finished off the ones who were wounded and we killed the ones who tried to surrender at the end. You know, it's, it's fairly vicious stuff. I'm not in favour of commemorating violence as a good thing, personally. I think, yes, commemorate the first dull in Irish independence, very strongly. Celebrating violence, I'm not in favour of, personally, in terms of commemoration. I don't know what you think about that, Colin. Well, I think these aren't the only two options. And I don't think that's what you're saying, is like um, commemorate and celebrate on the one hand or ignore on the other. Mm. Like, there are so many other things that we could do. And for the stuff like Kill Michael uh, or instances where a lot of people have been killed, the last thing we should be doing is ignoring it. We could uh, find a way to involve the public in finding out what happened in discussing it and having uh, events and publications and talks mm. you don't necessarily have to have like the army band and uh, a march and a parade for every single event I mean if people my, my, my point or my opinion would be if people want to do that that's fine as we mm. said local commemorations are good in that way because people can just talk to each other and say what they think yeah. I would be very uncomfortable with the idea of you know state commemorations of individual acts of violence you know on the other hand, I mean, I would be totally against also um, something along the lines of the RIC, where it was like, where the volunteers in the IRA of that area were, were painted as the bad guys, which which again would be a historical, but also, I mean, what message are you trying to send by that? You know, that, that Irish independence was wrong, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not up for that message personally, you know? Well, I've seen these are the conclusions you have to draw if you just follow through the yeah. logical arguments of what you're making. Exactly. I mean, you know, Again, from my point of view, I, I, I would be strongly in favour, as I said, of commemorating the first and the second all, even, you know, May 1921. And let's, you know, the, pr- the principle of, of Irish self-determination, acknowledging, remembering the armed campaign uh, and so on, that was parallel with it. Because people think also that the, we call it the, the War of Independence. I mean, that's not everything that was going on. For example, I mean, the, the political, the civilian stuff was in a way more important. And people like uh, P.S. O'Hagerty, for example, made this point that, you know, it wasn't all about the, the you know, it wasn't about the gunmen and, and so on. That was supposed to be ancillary to the main effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even Frank Gallagher, who's on the other side of the, the treaty divide, made, made this point as well. I mean, four glorious years refers not to the military struggle, but to the political struggle. I think in terms of the message that you're sending, that's that's the correct message, would be my advice if anybody is listening. Yeah, that's makes thing as well, like, you know, what role should the state have in commemoration? Uh, the big events you're talking there with that do lead to the establishment of the free state, things like the first all, things like second all even, and, and so on. But other than providing funding and providing like, you know, an umbrella for having these discussions and uh, maybe coordinating some of the other stuff, what role should the state, if any, have in so many things? So there, you could go week by week through 2020 and uh, yeah. 2021 and nearly have a different event every week of something significant that happened. Yeah, and I mean, just when you raise that point, I mean, what it brings to my mind is the ambivalence of the actual Irish revolutionary period, right? So apart from the declaration of the first doll in 1919, there isn't an unambiguous date where the Irish state can be, let's say, mutually commemorated. You know, was it the passing of the treaty? Like, obviously, that's very divisive. Was it the Government of Ireland Act? Certainly not. You know, was it the truce of, of July 11th, 1921? Now, I believe the government's going to go for that. And, and I think that that's reasonable enough, because in that way you can say, well, 
you know, Aaron Struggle got to the negotiating table and that was good enough. Yeah. And I think that's okay, an okay message. And you can commemorate all the people who died up until the truce. Now, actually, lots of people died after the truce yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. especially in the north. Absolutely. Um, so, but it, it, it is tricky. But I mean, the Irish, the Irish Revolutionary Period is actually very ambivalent. That's why there was a, a yeah. civil war at the end of it. But one thing as well to consider is that, again, this is a 32-county island. And the other big centenary is uh, Northern Ireland was created in, in 1920. Uh, and, and how to mark that. And I mean, unionists, I assume, but unambiguously want to mark it as a good thing. They have a number of dates. They can the Government of Ireland Act being passed in December 1920. They have the opening of the Northern Parliament in, in June 21. Or or if they if they want to be really technical, the passing of executive powers in November 1921. Whichever date, but I mean, yeah. unionists, I assume, would want to think of it as, as, as an unbe- birth of a nation. Northern nationalists, who are about 50% now of the population, they ain't going to go for that. I mean, how will, how will it be handled in the North? Well, yeah, and that's the thing as well, with the creation of the the um, the Northern Statelet, uh, with the creation of Northern Ireland, across the board, unionists were pretty happy with the six-county territory. With the creation of the Free State in the 26 counties, that's not the case among mm. nationalists, among Southern, among Southern nationalists. At the time, no, for sure. Yeah, about yeah. half of them were, were very unhappy. and C- Certainly a third were very unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And even among the ones that, that did support it, there was, it was support with reservations. Oh, yeah. I mean, even Arthur Griffiths said yeah. that, yeah. But in Northern Ireland, though, I mean, uh, it's possibly an even even more difficult problem, no? And, like, thinking back to how uh, a 20th anniversary of the founding of Northern Ireland would have been celebrated, compared to how triumphalist it would have been, the role of the Stormont government as it was, then how they would have commem- been involved in commemorations, uh, whereas... Northern Ireland views, you know, we the people meant yeah. <laughs> X amounts of people exactly. who are unionists. How do you do it now? And I mean, if there is to be commemorations of the, the birth of Northern Ireland, um, will the Sinn Féin members of the Northern Assembly attend? Yeah. yeah. Will the Irish government attend? Yeah, see, that's the thing. Tricky. Like, you know, um, can you commemorate the birth of Northern Ireland? Yes. Can everyone commemorate the birth of Northern Ireland? Yes. Does everyone think that the birth of Northern Ireland was a good thing? No, not, not at all. Yeah. So can we have a commemoration where people with very, very striking different views can come together, discuss things? Certainly not in terms of a parade or a celebration, no. But conferences, articles, books, yes. Conferences, articles, books, yes. Commemorations, as I understand the term, I don't think so. No. No, no. the unions will have a commemoration and, and no one else will, yeah. will attend, I would say. Yeah, but you're not going to like shut down Belfast and everyone's going to join in one parade and march around City Hall. Well, of course they could do that. I mean, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing has been done in the past, but yeah. in, in the new climate, it probably wouldn't fit as well, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, John, well, I think we've covered that. So thank you very much. And thank you very much to all the audience for listening. Uh, if you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to irishhistoryshow.ie or Follow us on Facebook at forward slash The Irish History Show or on Twitter at Irish History Pod. And if you could rate or review the show on iTunes, we would really appreciate that. That would be really helpful to us. Thank you.